Philippians chapter number three. I have so enjoyed working through this book of the Bible. It's been immensely helpful for just unification purposes in church, but also just for gospel-mindedness and for keeping the gospel central to everything that we do and say and as we move through life on a day-to-day basis. And we want that to be us. I make no bones about that, that as a pastor, our church, we want to be people that are constantly gospel-minded, constantly sharing the good news of Jesus, constantly are trying to get the lost to the message of Jesus, but also trying to take the message of Jesus to the lost. And this book has just been a perfect reminder for that over and over and over and over again. Before we read the first seven verses of Philippians 3, I'll give you a little bit of, uh, of an analogy that I think will help us this morning. Here in about four or five months, uh, myself and then uh, Brian Hazlett from our church and uh, actually my younger brother's going to come with us. We're going to go uh, to Vanuatu for about seven or eight days. And a uh, couple reasons why. We're taking a trip there next summer as a church family. And uh, we want to survey that and be there and, and look at a few things. But also, I just want to, honestly, I want to be there. Uh, we, we have a, a pretty heavy footprint in Vanuatu. We have a lot of money invested in Vanuatu. So that's uh, Seth and Nicole who are there and, and have their home and, and are ministering to the Tiale people group. That's also the Panero family. And of course, uh, Emily's probably in the room this morning. Emily was there for, for two years and, and just recently got back. But we'll go over there. And I'll spend half my time kind of in the city uh, with, with the Paneros, and I'll spend half my time kind of out in the bush with Seth and Nicole. Many of you know them. If you don't, that'll happen in due time. You just stay posted. It, it's an, Vanuatu is an island in the South Pacific, kind of in the neighborhood of Australia. But I'll spend half my time really just kind of deep in the bush with, uh, with Seth and Nicole. And Seth messaged me a couple weeks ago and said, hey, I know you're preaching through Philippians and you're preaching through Colossians. When you get here, could I get some kind of local bush pastors together and could you teach through one of these books in a matter of like two or three days? Like we'll just spend six or seven hours a day for two or three days and teach through this book to these local pastors. I said, I'd love to, that sounds awesome. I've been working through this anyway, that'd be great. But the more that I thought about it, the more daunting it has seemed to be. Not only is there a language barrier where someone's going to have to translate for me, but there's this massive cultural barrier. And as I'm rereading through some of my sermons and I'm trying to prep for this, I'm realizing so much of how we communicate with each other, even today, the way that I'll communicate with you, is cultural. And we say all of these things just with our vernacular and we have this baseline of knowledge that we understand because we're 21st century Americans, we get it. And I can say things to you in a sermon or, or as an analogy that... I'm not going to be able to say over there because it's just a different culture. I can't tell them, you know, Paul really hit this one out of the park because they don't know what I'm talking about. They don't know baseball. This is really about as primitive and remote as you can possibly get. They don't, when I say, you know, this minister to the people in your orbit, they don't know what orbit is. Many of these villages, when, when missionaries will go in there, they'll start with telling them, here's on a map your village and here's the other villages. And they're like, okay, we know that. But here's the, the country, and they're like, oh, there's more than just our villages. They don't, even today, don't know. And that, well, there's actually other countries, and here's a globe, and here are those other planets. And, you know, there's, they just don't know. So there's so much culturally that we assume. And I say that for this reason. This passage, Paul relies on a, a deep level of cultural understanding that he knows his audience already has. So he says some things in verses 2 and verses 3 that are crystal clear to his audience, but we now, a couple thousand years removed, read them and are like, what is he talking about? I have no idea what dogs and concision and all this sort of stuff, like we're just lost. 
So we have to work a little extra hard this morning to understand. I have to give you a little bit more of background and culture this morning to help this text come to life. But it's worth the effort and it's worth the work because there's just, there's a lot of gold here in this passage as there is in every passage of the Bible. So all that being said, let's read it. We'll have a song and then we'll begin to digest these seven verses. So here we go. Philippians 3, look at verse number one. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it's safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, in Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. The core thought of this morning, if you were to really boil down the seven verses, is throw away your religious resume. That's really what Paul's going to get after here is encouraging people to take all of their religious credentials and to count them as nothing and to throw those away and turn to Jesus and Jesus alone. But I want to take this one bite at a time. And I've broken this down into three parts. Each part is larger than the first, but we're going to give it in three parts. Rejoice, remember, and reject. So Paul starts this section with just rejoice in the Lord. He says in chapter 3, verse 1, a brief sentence. It's half of the verse. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And I love that Paul starts with finally because it tells me he's just like every other preacher. He says finally, like in conclusion, and he's halfway through the book. Like he's nowhere close to the end. And if you read Philippians 4.8, he says finally again. So he's like in conclusion again, but for real this time when he actually gets to the end. But he's halfway through. He's like in conclusion. He's nowhere close. But finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Now this is a... Very straightforward, simple truth, but it's a very needed truth to rejoice in the Lord. And there's this spirit and attitude of joy that permeates this letter. And Paul wants this spirit and attitude of joy to begin to attach itself to the character and temperament of the child of God so that we will rejoice in the Lord and have this spirit as well. And rejoicing in the Lord is, is a beautiful instruction here in light of what he's going to say. Because this is a great antidote for what he's going to spell out that's wrong. He's going to actually give the antidote of rejoicing in the Lord. And he'll give it again, actually, in verse number three. He'll say the same thing. But this is, this is a great antidote for being captivated by just mere religiosity. This, this is a great uh, difference to just my set of rules and my religiosity Whereas contrasting is rejoicing in the Lord and choosing to find your joy and your satisfaction and your happiness and your sustenance from Jesus and Jesus alone and not from your, your religious resume and what you're doing or not doing, but to find that actually in Jesus. This is also a great diagnostic tool to help you determine if you're living the Christian life the way it's meant to be lived. Because the Christian life is, it's supposed to be a pleasant experience it's actually supposed to be a joyous experience. If you're rejoicing in the Lord, you're not meant to be down in the dumps, but you are meant to be up in the heavenlies. 
That doesn't mean that you're immune to pain or that you're oblivious to all the negative circumstances that could potentially come into your life, but it does mean that you're able to navigate through those supposed negative circumstances more swiftly and more powerfully than someone who doesn't know the Lord because you are finding a strength and a sustenance and a power from Him because you're joined and rejoicing in Him. So this is a great just opening to this passage because what happens when you get distracted from Jesus and you get distracted from joining in the Lord and finding such satisfaction in Jesus, inevitably it leads you to start to keep some sort of list or some sort of set of rules and it leads you to be immensely frustrated in your Christian life. And if you enter into the church this morning just really frustrated with your Christian life and not having the joy of the Lord, let me encourage you to take heed to what we're going to talk about this morning because this is a great diagnostic to help you see if you're on the right page. I will also note this and then we'll move on. This is not just an attitude, it's also an activity. To rejoice in the Lord is not just an attitude that you have deep down at your core. It is something that actually works itself out and you do. For example, we just spent the first 20 minutes or so of our church service singing, yes, but really that was designed to be a time where we corporately and collectively rejoice in the Lord. It's supposed to be a time where we come and we sing about the cross and that's what we preach and that's what we want that's what we want to stay focused on. We sing that I'm, I'm saved, saved, saved. That's like the only song you sing that you can just scream. Like, I'm saved. You just let it go. That's way up there, and you just got to let her fly. I mean, you got, you got to go all the way or not at all on that one. But you go saved and amazing grace and all of these things. What, what are we doing? Going through the motions? Hopefully not. What are we doing? Just this is what churches do. You sing? No, that's meant to be we come and we rejoice in the Lord. So, I'll even take the, the moment to thank even the choir and the orchestra and the instrumentalists and Andy and those that prepare to help us rejoice in the Lord. That's a blessing that people prepare that and help us. I would even encourage you to like come into church when church starts and not hang out in the lobby because you're missing something. You're missing rejoicing in the Lord. We're meant to do that together. It's an activity that we go through together. And Paul says, let me just start with very simple, just rejoice in the Lord. But then he goes from this rejoicing to this remembering. And he says, remember to beware. The end of verse number one, he says, to write the same things to you, to me indeed it's not grievous, but for you it's safe. He says, so understand, I've, we've talked about this before. We've had this conversation. I've already instructed you on this. But for me to tell you the same thing, look, that's, that's no problem for me. And it's actually really safe for you. And repetition is a great key to learning. And Paul knows this and he says, I'm going to tell you something that I've already told you before, but this is actually really safe for you to keep you spiritually harnessed in and to keep you away from some, some detrimental behavior or ideology that could permeate the church. So he says, look, I'm, I'm going to write this to you, but this is safe. So this is another reason why it's a little bit difficult to understand verses 2 and 3, because he's already instructed them in this deeply. Now he's just giving them a review. So he's not really spelling this out point by point by point. He's already done that, but he's going to tell them again and review this again and tell them to beware of something. So here's what he says in verse number two. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. Here's, here's where we have to start to work to understand this. These are three descriptors that are meant to describe the same group of people. And it's a group of people that have come to be known as Judaizers. They say, who are Judaizers? Judaizers have, have a lot of press in the Bible. Almost all of Galatians is, is just pointed right at them. A big part of Philippians, part of Colossians, a lot of Paul's writings are pointed at this group of people. 
It's a group of people that are, are Jewish in origin. Maybe they were born Jewish or maybe they became Jewish as, I don't know, a 13-year-old or a 20-year-old or a 30-year-old, but they were, they were Jewish. And now they have come to faith in Jesus. So they're previously Jewish, but now Christian. And these are people that are attempting to take what they held near and dear to their hearts in Judaism. They're attempting to handcuff Christians to this and say, Christians, you need to do this as well. So there'd be a litany of things that they recommended they would do, such as observing the Sabbath days or the different Jewish holidays or obtaining a, a kosher diet, a lot of different things. But the most prominent one that you see surface over and over and over again in the New Testament is actually circumcision. This was kind of the, 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 the grand big picture of if you wanted to be Jewish, this was something that was, that was kind of a final step that you would have to do, that a, a male would have to be a, a removal of a bit of flesh to outwardly symbolize that I am now officially part of the group, I am now officially part of this group that identifies with God, that I'm going to do this externally and physically. And these people have taken the Jewish laws and they're attempting to attach it to others and say that you need this in order to have right standing with God. The best descriptor of this is Acts 15, verse number one. It's the clearest description of the Judaizers. And here's what, here's what it says. Certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. And there's the key. It wasn't just, these are some good things, consider these things, this would maybe be good to think about. It was, you need this in order to not be guilty with God. You need this in order to have your sins forgiven. You need this in order to have right standing. You need to do this. And Paul works very hard all the time to ensure that his converts know that this is a trap and this is wrong and salvation is by grace through faith alone, and you do not need to add to it. You do not need to do something. And he is deaf on this stuff, and he describes this group of people with three words that are a bit derogatory. He's a bit sarcastic here. And what Paul does is he takes three terms that Jewish people would often use of Gentile people, and he reverses it on them. And he says, I'm going to apply these to you. Jewish people would often look at Gentile people and they would say these three pejorative terms. They would call them dogs, they would call them evil, and they would call them mutilators. That's concision. So Paul says, I'm going to take these and I'm going to apply these to you who are trying to add something to salvation. I'm going to apply them to you. He starts first with dogs. Now, once again, culturally, we think dogs, great, cute, awesome. First century, no one thought that. No one had a dog as a pet in the first century. You just didn't do it. The dogs were almost equated with vermin. They were very dirty, they were very filthy, and they roamed the streets scavenging for stuff. No one bred and sold dogs and, and considered them to be man's best friend. That just did not happen. In the Greco-Roman world, a dog would be almost similar to how we would think of rats. We would maybe call someone who tattles or who snitches or something a rat. And there's, there's a particular sting to that because a rat is just kind of generally thought of in, in our day and age as kind of scummy and dirty and nasty. And a dog was the same way in this day and age. And Jews would oftentimes call Gentiles dogs to indicate how unclean they thought they were. And Paul says to these people who are attempting to make Gentiles clean through circumcision, he says of these people you are actually the unclean dogs. 
You're not making anybody clean when you're doing this. You are actually unclean for trying to force this on somebody. I'm going to call you a dog. He also calls them evil workers. It's a bit ironic. He says, and you trying to take the Torah and the Old Testament law and to try to encourage people to live in this supposed righteousness, you actually are working evil and you're doing something that is not righteous. It is actually evil. And then he calls them the concision, which we would just say mutilation. He says, in your attempt to be very precise with a knife in circumcision, I'm actually going to equate that with mutilation. I'm going to call you what you would call the pagans. The pagans that would cut themselves in order to earn right standing with God who would, who would cut their arms or legs or they would mutilate themselves. Jews would often look at, at them and call them mutilators. It says, you know what? I'm going to call you a mutilator because you're telling people to do something that they don't need to, that they don't need to do and you are actually encouraging them to mutilate themselves and this is not necessary now let me stop for just a moment at the end of this verse. I feel this needs to be clarified just because of the, the day and age that we live in. I understand that verse number two it would be wildly unpopular to most Christian people. Now that's a strong verse. It is a bit sarcastic. He is doing some great wordplay here. He's not just name calling for the fun of it. But that's a really strong verse. Paul is, he's going to, even through verse number three, draw a hard line in the sand and say, these people are wrong, and we are right, and be aware of them, and stay away from them. Now, I understand for a variety of reasons that's wildly unpopular. For some of you, it's your religious background. You had a, a pastor that saw himself as some sort of dictator who used the Bible or, or rules or laws or lines in the sand in order to manipulate people or to put upon people things that he should not have, which is his oldest time. That was, that was in the first century. John wrote about that in 3 John, about Diotrephes, who wanted the preeminence, and Diotrephes used any means necessary, even calling people heretics who weren't heretics, in order to, to keep his place of prominence and power. So some of you have had that experience, so you naturally have an aversion to someone drawing a hard line in the sand, and your teeth are set on edge a little bit to that. Some of the people are just our culture as a whole. Christians generally see the church and the Bible as repositories for truth, and there's a, a ginormous shift in our culture where people are seeing truth as a whole as just something that's relative. That there is no absolute truth. You cannot tell me that you're right and I'm wrong. We can just say that's your truth, this is my truth, and we can just, you know, get along even though our crews are, complete, are, are completely contrary. And so there's a lot of people that have adopted that, that, hey, we're just all the same paths leading up the same mountain to the same goal. Does it really matter? Can you really say that Jesus is the only way? That seems a bit antiquated. Don't draw a hard line in the sand and don't call truth, truth, because really what is truth after all? Beyond that, there's even a lot of our young people that are going to university and are being instructed by, by political scientists or, or by people who, who are looking at societies and are claiming that religion has done more harm than good. And there's a measure of truth to that. But they look down through the years and they find even supposed Christians who drew hard lines in the sand and what was birthed out of that was some really unhealthy, inaccurate, disgusting behavior by supposed Christian people. You can go back even to the early 1800s and you can find sects of Dominican or, or Franciscan monks who roamed countrysides looking for people who disagree with their heresy and with the power of the state behind them, they would imprison them or they would torture them or they would kill them because they didn't agree with their theological stances. You can go back even 70 or 80, 80 years to World War II and see the rise of Nazi Germany and see supposed Christian churches inside of Germany 
who found some sort of biblical warrant to agree with the Fuhrer and go along with Nazism. And that naturally causes someone to be a bit disgusted. You can go inside of our own culture, in case we just wanted to point at another country, you can go back 50 or 60 years to certain segments of, of our country in certain regions where there were those that were in ministry who were disciplined or thought ill of because they wanted to make the church broad and not have racial division, and they sought to invite everyone to the youth activity or to VBS or anyone can be baptized. And there were just not too many years ago, there were people in our country who looked at that and said, no, you're wrong, and found some sort of biblical concoction in order to say that, no, this race is superior to this one. That happened here. So there, there has been, you have to tip your hat to the fact that there has been a lot of people who have drawn lines in the sand inaccurately, and a lot of damage has come from that. And I wish that I could change that. I wish that I could take some of the nauseating behavior and beliefs that people have propagated that are absolutely contrary to the Bible, and I could undo it all. I can't. So I understand why an American Christian would naturally have a little bit of an aversion to taking just hard stands on truth drawing lines in the sand and saying, this is right and that is wrong, the end, that's what we claim. I get why someone would think that would be a little bit of risky business. I can even, I don't sympathize with, but I do, I get a little bit why even preachers would, would not preach through books of the Bible. This is why I love preaching through books of the Bible verse by verse, because you can't ignore dogs and concision. It's there, we gotta talk about it. I can get why, why there's some pastors who wanna just give some kind of fluffy self-help sermons, you know, every week and want to avoid controversial issues because they find it risky. However, it is more risky, 100% you can bank on it, it is more risky to not take a stand and to not draw a line in the sand where the Bible clearly draws a line in the sand. Where does you have to? And this is talking about the core and the foundation of Christianity, that we are saved by grace and faith alone in Jesus alone. And it is no, there are no addendums, there is no plus, there is no you need to do this in order to be saved. And that, that is deeply important. That's what Paul is getting after here. And he's a bit ticked that there are people that are wanting to say, you have to, uh, you have to follow this diet or you have to do these days or you have to be circumcised. You have to do this stuff in order to be right with God. And Paul, he's, he's not happy about it. So he says, beware of these people they're wrong. And I'm going to call them evil. I'm going to call them mutilators. I'm even going to call them unclean dogs. They're wrong. And then he says in verse number three, and he starts this idea of rejecting religiosity as a means to obtain God's favor. He says, that's who they are, but we are the circumcision, which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. One more cultural note to understand that first phrase, we are the circumcision. What does that mean? Paul's talking to Gentile people, not Jewish people, people that have not physically had this, had, had this symbol happen to them. And he says, we are the circumcision. What Paul is doing is he's drawing on a, a long theological history down through the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. That the Jews had this tendency to think that, you know what? I've done A, B, and C. I've gone through this symbolism physically. I've done this. This has happened to me. So now I'm okay with God. Now I can do whatever I want. I'm part of the club, I can do whatever I want, and it, and it doesn't really matter because I've done this. 
And you have a, a lot of instruction in Deuteronomy and in Jeremiah where, where the prophets stood up and said, no, what God is actually after, that's just a symbol. What he's really after is what they called circumcision of the heart. He wants to cut away the deadness of your heart. He wants to cut away the sin out of your heart. He wants to make you new and whole again on the inside. That's just a symbol to, to really signify what God has done for you inside. Paul writes this in Romans. He says this just very plainly. Romans 2, he's not a Jew, which is just one outwardly that's after circumcision. That's just the outward in the flesh. That's not really what counts. He is a Jew. He's talking spiritually here, which is one inwardly. Circumcision of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. He says what really matters is that this has happened on the inside. That God has cut away the deadness and the sin from the inside. And he says in that light, we are that. We, we can say that we belong. We can say that we're part. We can say that we are with God. It's, it's accurate and fair for him. We don't use this terminology much in our day and age, but in this culture, it was fair for him to say, hey, we are the circumcision. We belong to God. We're part of his family. And then he says this, which worship God in the spirit. That you could use worship or serve there. We worship and we serve God, not in our own power, but in the power of the Spirit. We go through life and we rely on the Spirit of God. Then he says, same thing that he said in verse number one, and we rejoice in Christ Jesus. Here again, it carries this nuance of, of boasting and glorying and finding your confidence in Jesus. Then in contrast to that, we have no confidence in the flesh. What he's saying is we are God's covenant people. We do not need to go back to the Old Testament law. We do not need to go back to the Torah. We do not need to go back to these things that, that were there for Old Testament Israel. We do not glory in what we do to ourselves. We don't glory in our list of rules. We don't glory in our religiosity. We glory and have confidence in Jesus. And this is for us. Now understand, this is directed towards not pagan people. The Judaizers were not pagan people. They were people who recognized Christ's death. There were people that even saw that as significant and even would have attached Christ's death for our sins. But they attached something to that and when it was all said and done, they had to put their trust in themselves for true righteousness to be affected. The Judaizers did. And Paul is after that to say, no, that's not how it's done. We glory in Jesus. We serve God in the Spirit. We do not take confidence in that. We do not put our trust there. We don't continue to believe that heaven is a reward for the upright. That is not the way that it works. Salvation is not a reward for the righteous. It's a gift for the guilty. And that's what Paul's saying here. This is not us earning this. This is all about Jesus enjoying and rejoicing in him. So let's celebrate that. Jesus paid a debt for us that we owed and we could not pay ourselves. And he's done for us what we could not do for ourselves. So rejoice and glory in that. Beware of people that want to lead you astray from that. And then he says, verse number four, and this verse number four, and in a couple of weeks we get to verse number 15, two of my favorite verses in the Bible. Paul's just so honest. And, and I love the way he puts it. He says, though I might also have confidence in the flesh. He says, look, we don't have confidence in the flesh, but I'm probably somebody that could have confidence in my flesh if I think about it. Here's what he says. If any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. He said, okay, you want to play this game? Game on. You want to play the trust in the flesh game? You want to play the religious resume game? Fine, let's play. 
You think that you can trust your good works? You think that you can trust your religious deeds and your willpower and all that you've done? Let me tell you about me. You're on the JV level. I am varsity. I I have got this figured out. Let me give you my spiritual resume. So he's going to give us seven things in verses 5 and 6. This is Paul's spiritual resume pre-Jesus. Here's what he says. Circumcised the eighth day. This is like saying I was born in the church nursery. You're talking about doing something now later on in life to these adult people. I was in it to win it from the get-go. Like this was day eight for me. This has been my whole life. I've circumcised the eighth day. I'm of the stock of Israel. I'm a Jewish boy from a Jewish home. I'm not some Gentile who was proselytized into Judaism. I am, I'm from the stock of Israel. I'm Jewish through and through. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. This is, this, once again, cultural understanding here. This was a badge of honor that some Jews would wear. So the Jews move into the promised land. They're broken up into 12 tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. They're together in unison under Saul, under David, under Solomon. After Solomon, they break apart. Ten tribes go north to go do their own thing, and they have bad king, bad king, bad king, just a litany of of bad rulers, and they're terrible. The south is like a mixed bag, but there's two tribes that stayed south in Jerusalem, Judah and Benjamin. The other ten went north, just completely revolted against the Lord, and they were conquered. And The south was eventually conquered too, but the north was conquered so much, and they were so amassed into the broad culture that to this day they're called the ten lost tribes you're not going to be able to trace if you're not from judah or benjamin you don't know what tribe you're from you're not going to be able to trace your lineage back because they were just so assimilated into the culture but if you're from judah or benjamin you can trace your lineage all the way back and those are the ones that stayed true that that were there that were focused and this is a badge of honor to be of judah or benjamin and paul says i'm of the tribe of benjamin I can trace my lineage back. You want to talk about spiritual pedigree? I got the best spiritual pedigree you can imagine. Then he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. It's like saying I'm a man's man. I'm more Catholic than the Pope. That's, that's what Paul's saying. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Like, you want to talk about being Jewish or being a Hebrew? I got this figured out. He's also probably indicating that he could speak Hebrew. Most Jews at this point are speaking Aramaic or Greek. Very few would actually speak Hebrew or read the Torah in Hebrew. And Paul is likely saying, I read the Old Testament in the original languages, bro. Like, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul says in Galatians that if you compared him to his contemporaries and to those that were, that were around him, that Paul outshined them all because he was more zealous for the law. Paul says, you want to talk about somebody that loved his spiritual resume, that loved his upbringing, that loved his pedigree, that took this seriously, I'm that guy. Then he says, as touching the law, a Pharisee. Paul was, according to Acts 23, the son of a Pharisee. You think your Father's Day, happy Father's Day, you think your daddy has a lot of rules? I guarantee you Paul's daddy had more rules. He was a Pharisee. And Paul was the son of a Pharisee. And the Pharisees were the ones who just, I mean, they were so strict at observing all the law plus a whole list of things that they added to the law. They're the people that are always nitpicking at Jesus, telling them he did this wrong and he did that wrong. He forgot this. And Jesus is constantly telling them, like, you made that up. Like, you added that. God never said that, so leave me alone. But the Pharisees were those people who were just, they, were, they studied the Bible intensely. They were, they were people who memorized huge portions of Scripture. It's plausible that Paul had memorized the whole Old Testament no doubt he had memorized five, six, ten books easily. You're talking about someone who was in the Bible all the time. 
Paul says, I was, touching the law, I was a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. You know, that sounds strange to add to your resume. I killed some people. You know, I, I locked them in prison. What he's saying is, I was not your ordinary, everyday, run-of-the-mill Pharisee. This was so endearing to my heart that someone wanted to, to oppose the law. At least I thought they were opposing the law. Someone wanted to spin this Jesus stuff that I thought was contrary to the Old Testament. And, and I, was, I was so deeply committed to it that I took action. I just sit back and watch this happen. I locked people up. I tortured people. I even killed people. I persecuted the church because I was zealous after the law and after what I thought was good. Then he says, touching righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. His point is not that he's sinless. His point is that what the law recommended to remedy sin, he did that every time without fail. If the law said, go offer this sacrifice, Paul offered it. If it said, tithe this tithe, he tithed it. If it said, do this, don't do this, whatever it said, Paul was on it. He says, you want to you roll out the religious resumes? I got more to brag about than you. I have more confidence in myself and what I've done than you do. Let me tell you about all that I've done. But then he says, verse number seven, and all of it's lost without this verse. But what things were gained to me, what's that? The, the law, the Pharisee, the, all of this. What things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. He says, now that I know Jesus, none of that matters. I have taken my religious resume and I've shredded it and then I took the shreds and I threw them in the trash and then I burned it. I'm done with it. I had a ledger sheet out and I was adding to the ledger sheet that I kept the law and I was blameless and I was doing this and this was all profit to me. I thought it was helping me. I thought it was good for me. And now I've wiped the slate clean and I've said I don't need it anymore. It's lost. It's gone. I'm done with it all. It's over. I don't need that because I want Jesus and him alone. Now, to be clear, Paul is not Paul is not throwing all of his religious upbringing in the trash and saying this was a detriment to me. Paul is not seeking to renounce his upbringing as a detriment. Paul is seeking to renounce religious achievements as grounds for boasting. And he's saying all of those religious achievements have no grounds for boasting. They didn't didn't get me right standing with God. They didn't get me forgiveness of sins. They didn't do this for me. I can count them all as lost. That's not what matters. What matters is Jesus. I have my confidence and my faith in him and him alone. And it's his grace that's sufficient. It's his grace that has saved me. And I'm going to glory in him, not because of what I've done, but because of what he has done. And I don't need my resume anymore. I have a referral. I'm operating on this, that Christ has done for me what I could not do for myself. And if I did have a resume to throw up, it wouldn't be good enough anyway. Paul says, I have the best resume you could possibly want, but it's not good enough. The same is true for you. Take the best 15 minutes you've ever lived in your life, I still wouldn't bank on that to get you to heaven. Paul says, this is all lost to me. I don't count on this anymore. I don't bank on this anymore. This is not what I'm relying on to get me entrance into heaven. Let me just make this really practical. If I was to ask you, how would you get to heaven one day? How would you get right with God? How would you have right standing with him? How would you have forgiveness of sins? And your initial response was to say one of these or more. 
I was an altar boy. I was a preacher's kid. I was raised on the mission field. I got the most Awana badges. I did all my penance and went to confession regularly, and I had mass daily. I've been baptized. I went through evangelism training. I memorized the most verses. I'm the Bible quiz champion. I went through catechism. I prayed all the time. I had a spiritual vision. I saw a bright light, and I felt warm inside. I've been confirmed. I have perfect attendance to church this year. I have a great Christian pedigree. I went to Bible college. Whatever it el else it is, it doesn't matter. It does not matter. If your response to how you have right standing with God starts with I and not with he, there's a massive problem. A massive problem. And Paul is trying to say, I shredded that resume. It's lost to me. That is not what counts. These people are trying to tell you to do this and do that in order to have right standing with God. And that's not the way that it works. I've realized that this is by faith and faith alone. And if you're holding on to your religious resume, I have to believe that there's somebody here this morning that is in that boat. I, I, don't, I really don't think that I would be in this text if there wasn't someone or multiple people here that are in that boat. I've been there. Okay, I'll be the first to admit. Church kid, went to church a lot, read my Bible a lot, prayed a lot, did a lot of good things, helped, whatever. But deep down inside was holding on to what I was doing and my pride and I knew as a middle schooler that I had not given in to Jesus and put my faith in him and him alone. And when I did that, that was the greatest decision and the greatest day of my life where I realized I have to lay it all down. This is not about me and what I'm doing. It's just about him. I put my faith in him. And you see with Paul, a man who says, you want to play the religious game? Let's play it. You see with him this, this great truth that springs forth that no one is bad enough that he cannot be saved, but more importantly, according to Paul, no one is good enough that he need not be saved. Paul said, I was as good as you wanted to be, as good as you could be, but it's loss. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What matters is I wanted Jesus, and that's the only way. That's the only way that I have right standing with God. And Paul says, I took my ledger out. I was constantly trying to gain. I was constantly trying to add. I wipe it clean. It doesn't matter anymore. Understand what's eternally important. Salvation is not by works. It's not by doing something. It's not by being baptized. It's not by any of that. It's by faith and faith alone in Jesus. And you're not saved by your life. You're saved by his death. And if you've never realized that, and you've never put your faith and trust in him, I encourage you to put your faith where God has put your sins. And that's on Jesus. And to put your confidence in him this morning. Now, let me take this one step further because I know that the vast majority of the room is probably, hey, I'm a Christian. I've put my faith in Jesus. I've come to a point in my life where I have understood that. If you haven't understood that, I hope you'll do it this morning. If you have, let me take it one step further to hopefully make this applicable for the day. Some of you have sincerely come to faith in Jesus and you trust him and him alone to forgive you and to save you and to give you a home in heaven. And you've done that, but now... You, you're working so hard to obtain God's favor in this life. And this is really what Paul's getting at with his rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord. That instead of joining in the Lord and enjoying Jesus, now you have, although you're not trusting for, for heaven and eternity in yourself, but now in order for, for heaven to smile at you, I got my list, I got my rules. I got my stuff I need to do or not do. And I'm going to do that so that I can make heaven happy and not mad at me. And one of three things is happening to you if, if you're there. 
Either number one, you've already jumped ship and you've already grown so frustrated that you threw it all out the window and said, I can't do any of this and I'm, I'm entirely frustrated. Number two, perhaps you feel like you're keeping your list and you and your spiritual pride are looking down your nose at other people and judging them because they're not keeping your list. Or number three, which is the most likely, you're growing increasingly weary of the Christian life and you don't say, I rejoice in the Lord. You don't say, this is all my head's in the heavenlies and this is awesome and I'm just enjoying Jesus so much. But you're getting worn out because you're trying and trying and trying, but you just, you never know if you're doing enough to make heaven happy now. You pray for your meal, not because you really want to express gratitude to the Lord, but God may be mad at me if I don't pray for my meal because someone told me that one time. I give not out of, not out of a heart of gratitude and grace and God's given so much to me, but I want to give back, but I give out of this list and this rule and I don't want to be on God's curse list, so I better, I better give something to him. You read your devotions because I better do this because heaven won't smile. And, and my question is always, you know, okay, how much do you have to read that day? Is one verse enough? One chapter, two chapters? Like, where do you draw the line? When does God go from frown to smile? Or is there like a middle ground where he's just kind of like stoically looking at you where you read two chapters and he's not frowning, but he is smiling? Like, how does that work? But many Christians, even I, early on in my Christian life, fell into this trap. I'm trusting him for salvation and that alone, but I'm gonna get through this life and I better work real hard to make God happy with me. If I mess up today, man, I better fast tomorrow. And if I rest up, messed up real big today, I better fast three days tomorrow to make up for what I've done and do some sort of Christian penance. And that's not the way the Christian life is supposed to be. It's not supposed to be that way. Are there things biblically that we are not to do and we are to do? Absolutely. We'll talk some about that tonight in Colossians. I hope you come back. I'm jazzed about it. It's going to be a ton of fun. But are there things biblically? Yes. But the motivation is not, here's my list of rules so that heaven is happy with me. If you are saved, and I'm just going to give you a crash course on this in 60 seconds. If you're saved, what that means is your sins have been placed on Jesus and your sins have been removed from you. The slate has been wiped clean. But it doesn't, it doesn't stay there. That's not where it ends. The righteousness of Jesus has been given to you, has been imputed to you, is the biblical word, has been given to you so that now when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin, he doesn't see your mess ups, he doesn't see your mistakes, he doesn't see that and frown at you. When he looks at you, he sees his son, you're in Christ, and he sees righteousness. It is not a frown, it's a smile. This is why nothing can separate us from the love of God because it's not dependent upon us. It's dependent upon Jesus. It's not just that your sins are gone. It's that the righteousness has been given to you. Are there things that we should do? Yes, but the motivation is love and gratitude and awe of what he's done for me, not so that I can make him happy. It's not the way it works. If you've been married for any length of time, you can probably relate with this. I got married to Maggie because I loved her. I wanted to marry her. Did I know that, that came with some responsibilities? Absolutely. There's some spiritual responsibilities now to leave my home. There were some just kind of given responsibilities for guys. You know, I think the guys just generally know, like, you're the protector. And if a, if a wild bear attacks the family, like, you're front line. Like, you're first up. Every guy knows that. Like, you get eaten first while they run. Like, that's the way that it works. Like, you assume that responsibility as a husband. When I got married to Maggie, we ran away to our honeymoon. We did not sit down the next day and make a list of do's and don'ts for each other. Like it never happened. That was not a, hey, let's go enjoy each other. Well, here's, here's your responsibilities and here's my responsibilities. You better keep your list and I better keep my list. No. 
It's I love her and I care for her and I want what's best for her and we want to respect each other, we want to love each other, we want to value each other and birthed out of that comes some really just simple things that we do for each other because we want to, because we love each other. I don't think my wife has ever told me, you're in charge of taking out the trash. But the vast majority of the time, I take out the trash. Why? Because I need to check it off so she's not mad at me today? No, because I love her and I don't want her to take out the trash. It's that simple. And our Christian life is meant to be joying and rejoicing in the Lord and thanking Him for what He's done. It's good news. It's awesome news. He's taken away our sins. He's given us a home in heaven. He has given us the righteousness of Christ. We are accepted in Him. John wrote about this in 1 John, and he, he just marveled at it. And he said, I don't even know how to really comprehend this or talk about it. Like, this is just amazing to me. That's meant to be our experience. And from that, if God asks me to do something or, or this is there, great, fine, easy. I'll do that because I love him. If God asked me to stand on my head for an hour a day, I'd try. I'm glad he didn't, but I would. It doesn't matter what he wants me to do. It's a, it's a, it's a relationship. It's love. And if you are living your life, try, your Christian life, that you're legitimately saying, but you're trying to earn his smile, I guarantee you, you're frustrated or you're really spiritually prideful, one or the other. And don't live that way. Understand who you are and that your religious credentials, throw them away. They don't matter. Understand who Jesus is and he's done everything for you. If you've never put your faith in him, put your faith in him. Best thing you ever do. And if you have put your faith in him, stay there and live there. And continue to joy and rejoice in your Christian life and live out of that experience and not confidence in the flesh, but confidence working, energized by the Spirit of God, rejoicing in Jesus. This is not about me, it's about Him. And, and move through the Christian life that way. That's how it's meant to be. It's meant to be a pleasant experience. It's meant to be happy. It's meant to be fun. It's meant to be awesome. Look at descriptions of heaven. They are not humdrum. There's a party happening. There's food and there's culture and there's, that's the way it's supposed to be even in this life as a Christian experience. So rejoice in Jesus and stay there and live out of that.